0: Welcome to Community Values, a podcast dedicated to exploring the values of vibrant, equitable places. I'm your host, Tracy Donato, of consulting firm Anthem LLC, and today we are speaking with Evan Mintz, Pulitzer Prize-nominated former opinion editor for the Houston Chronicle, current communications manager for the criminal justice team at Arnold Ventures, and advocate for the Gulf Coast Area's Ike Dyke Project. Thanks for joining. Okay. Hey, thank you so much um, for being here again. I really appreciate your time. I have been a fan for a little while and we're Twitter friends and we know a lot of the same folks. Um, I guess it's a small world in journalism and advocacy and all this good stuff. So
1: yeah, Houston is one of those places where it's huge and it always feels like a small town.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I found that, you know, I feel like New York is that way as well, which was mm-hmm. surprising to me. I think, you know, as a Southerner going up to the big city, I really thought that it would be um, what's the word I'm looking at? like unfathomable, right? Like overwhelming. But yeah. And it was overwhelming in some ways, but in terms of the relationships, it's mm-hmm. very insular, like, I was in commercial real estate consulting, so it was very,
1: like, this
0: big. Um, yeah, they,
1: they get involved in their little circles.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so one of the things, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the Community Values podcast is that your work transcends topics, and you are perhaps best known for your vocal support of the Ike Dyke, right? Like, you're, you're constantly uh, haranguing and making sure our politicians... Here in Texas and in Houston specifically, understand that it really should have already been a priority.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've uh, become the Ike, Ike guy.
0: You are the Ike, you know, and that's funny because I think of you as the criminal justice guy.
1: Oh,
0: right, like that's,
1: that's like my day job, and then free time, uh, I'm the <laughs> Ike Dyke guy.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, but I think your, um, I think your reputation now is that of the Ike, Ike guy. But I want to, I did kind of want to talk to you about that evolution, right? So, talk to me a little bit about. Um, your past work, if you want to just briefly, because I think that, um, there's a connection, right? You don't just go from being the criminal justice guy to being the guys. There's no connection. Mm -hmm. And I think that connection is this idea of how do we, um, protect people, Mm -hmm. right? Like how do we create systems and policies that actually serve, uh, communities, right? So.
1: I think that's exactly it, that you expect, uh, public policymakers and elected officials to use their power to benefit their constituents, to protect people and ensure that everyone can live and thrive and survive. Um, But they're not doing that. Now, I, I just have to say, I'm no expert on engineering, on water dynamics, on the weather. Uh, I'm just a Houstonian who really doesn't want to die in a hurricane. And I I don't want to see (laughs) other people dying in hurricanes too. It's a
0: valid position.
1: It's It's, a valid position. It's controversial sometimes, but I really need to stand by it. Uh, (laughs) And I first learned about the Ike Dyke when I was on the Houston Chronicle editorial board. And this was back when we were in downtown in the old building and we were meeting Uh, with Bill Merrill and some people from Texas A&M who were experts on it. And we had this big old table in like an old corporate meeting room that had like glass shelves and a marble table and a wet bar where you know that like Lyndon Johnson got drunk.
0: Right. Generations. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And At this time, I think I was still just a contract worker for them. I wasn't even full time. I was doing freelance for them and coming in whenever I could. And I'm sitting at this table and they're showing this big map that really goes lot by lot, block by block in the Houston area, showing, oh, well, if we get a hurricane like this, uh, this place will flood this much. And if you get a storm surge like this, it'll flood this much. And if we had an Ike dike, it would stop this from happening. And sort of my eyes went wide and went, well, gosh, we better build that thing. Gee golly. Because um, <laughs> if we have a hurricane, which, you know, they happen every year. Uh, they
0: happen multiple times every year, at the exact same time every year.
1: Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be in a lot of trouble. And the, at the time, there was some debate, well, do you build this coastal spine that really goes along the coast along Galveston Island, then up to Boulevard? Do you have a gate that just protects the ship channel, everything up from that? know, what does this look like? But whoever you talk to, they said, well, we have to do something. And the question really was like, well, what's the most politically feasible? What's the most cost effective? What's the best way to make this happen? But there was no one out there saying, well, we don't need to do anything. It's going to be fine. Right. Everything was saying we need to do something. And the Ike Dyke stood out as sort of the biggest, boldest proposal. And the real benefit of it is that it was designed to stop that storm surge from coming into Galveston Bay at all. Rather than having to worry about well, the, all that water starts to get in there, and it gets up on the coast, and it goes up the ship channel, and goes all these places. Then you have to build individual levee systems to protect each one of those neighborhoods. Sure. If you protect this one, it pushes the water into another one, and creates all of these complex problems. Or just well, stop it as far out as you can. Build the biggest thing that does it all at once. Uh, and I really stuck by that. And as the years went by, there's some conversation about, well, how are we going to fund this and how are we going to make it happen? And there's a lot of silence from elected officials on it. You had groups like the Bay Area Economic Bayhead. Partnership, yeah, yeah uh, which really cared about it. And they represent business interests in some of the smaller municipalities around the Bay. Uh, but you didn't have officials running on this kind of thing. They weren't saying sure. elect me to Congress, and I'll build the Tech. I'll make sure we get Why there. do you think that is? <laughs> Um, They don't get rewarded for it. People don't get elected for that kind of thing anymore. When Ted Cruz first ran for Senate during a a primary debate, he basically said, uh, I promise to not deliver any pork for the state. I promise to not bring down any money. I think it's a bad use of resources. And that sort of rhetoric uh, wins people over. It gets them elected. Uh, And I think we all suffer for that. And I think that's been a thing that's a long time in the making. It used to be that if you were a Democrat or a Republican or whoever, it was your job to go up to DC and deliver for the state, whether it's uh, getting the money to build the ship channel or to get uh, the Johnson Space Center, or to just get money for hydroelectric dams in the Hill Country or new court buildings or freeways or anything. But yeah. uh, that things is we take
0: for granted now that had to have federal funding to get done.
1: Absolutely. This state really thrived because we had federal investment. The first oil pipeline to connect Texas oil fields with a refinery in Pennsylvania was a federal project.
0: That's telling.
1: And we don't have that kind of attitude anymore. Uh, in fact, projects that had been planned for the state were rolled back. They were supposed to build a superconducting super collider outside of Dallas. And because of fights over federal funding, the whole thing was shut down. They actually already dug big tunnels through the soil, a massive uh, ellipse to fire subatomic particles at each other to discover like the origin of the universe. And it was going to happen in Texas. And then they just said, well, we don't want to spend this money anymore. So now it's not. Now it's happening in Switzerland.
0: Um, I think this goes like to that deeper idea of at one point, perhaps the philosophical divide was on how to spend the money, mm-hmm. right? Republicans versus Democrats or whatever. And now we find ourselves at a place where it's not, ha- or at least up front on the surface, the divide is not how to spend the money. It's whether to spend money, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know that conservatives do spend money, like they do spend money. There's no. Okay.
1: <laughs> and this this is definitely a, a shift that's happened on a bipartisan basis. Kay Belly Hutchison, Republican, uh, before she left office, uh, I've got a, a privilege of meeting with her. And she had this line that's always stuck with me. She said that being a senator from Texas is like being the parent of a teenager. There's always something you have to worry about. And talk <laughs> about when you're... When you represent some states, other states, other state states that aren't as big and grand as Texas, you only have so many issues you really got to worry about, it, and you have a certain luxury of dealing with other things. Of going it sounds up. like
0: Molly Ivins.
1: <laughs> and it, it, was, it was nice to hear that you know across the the partisan divide, yeah, you really have a job of responding to the material interests of your state, whether yeah. it's uh, the jobs around military bases or in the oil and gas industry or at the ports or, you know, just the, what the cities need. Uh, and she was replaced by someone who absolutely does not believe that.
0: Yeah. Now, how does that happen? Like, how do we get, <laughs> How I, I asked this question knowing full well where we're at. Um, you know, with the recent coup <laughs> in uh, the Capitol by domestic terrorists. Right. So um, to me, it's just mind blowing, particularly in a, so people think of Texas as part of the South, but Texas is actually its own unique thing. And I don't say that in like a chest pounding non-Texan way, because honestly, I always feel like I'm New York <laughs> from in my heart, even though I grew up in Texas and only spent a few years in New York. Um, but I, there's this perception of Texas, um, as, a as, as a Southern state that's just sort of, um, redneck, but Houston is actually very cosmopolitan. So Houston, it, has elements of that sort of Texas bootstrappy maverick thing going on, but we're the most diverse city right in the nation, even above and beyond New York city. It doesn't feel like that because there are, you know, ethnic niches and there's some, um, you know, it's spread out. So it's not like where you have it next to each other. Um, How do we translate that up Mm -hmm. to the state legislative level?
1: I think Texas creates its own narratives about who we are. Texas is the South. I'm going to push back at that. We had slaves. We had massive cotton plantations. Sure. Slavery is critical to the establishment yeah. of Texas as an independent nation, and then it sided with the Confederacy over that's the wishes of people like Sam Houston. But around the beginning of the 20th century, we realized that that's not a good story, and we created this narrative of us as the West. That we're no, you're West. right. And you saw that in things like uh, baseball teams named the Colt 45s, right. like movies about the Alamo. But even then we started to move away from that too. The Colt 45s became the Astros. Houston became home to NASA. You know, even Dallas, the TV show, which had a lot of you know people in big hats, was also about wealth and it was about uh, scandal and it was about big families. It didn't really feel like the South or the West. It was a soap opera. It was a place where business happened. Yeah. And, We've started to get away from that, too, back to this aura of, I think, the South again.
0: Yeah. And you know what? Maybe that's my own shit, right? Like, maybe that's my own distancing. Because, like, my drawl, as an example, right? Like, I have made a concerted effort my entire professional career to not speak with a drawl because of the perception of, this perception of the South as not capable of evolution.
1: hmm And we we are capable of evolution and we don't even have to try to imagine some future that didn't happen. You know, there were people in the past who stood for the right things at the time. You had people like uh, Mayor Thomas Scanlon immediately after the Civil War who integrated Houston City Hall, who integrated the police department. You had people like Senator Ralph Yarborough, who really fought for little people who helped establish Social Security to assure that government fights for people who need fighting for. You had people like Emma Tenayuka. You had people like Maury Maverick. You had all these people in Texas history, but we do not lionize them or elevate them for the good work that they did that we're still thankful for today instead you had statues to folks uh who fought for the, the south for it yeah. and we're in an effort right now to try to tear those down to remove them but we're not replacing them with a new history
0: a new and- narrative and like you said it's a true one it's not mm-hmm. that it's a made-up story or a uh, that didn't happen it's our actual history
1: yeah uh, absolutely. And because we forget that history, we start to make the bad mistakes where we repeat it. And it's not just in you know deep critical issues relating to race in America, but just our attitude of what the government is supposed to be there for. And I yeah. think you start to see the shift uh, around 1994, when you had this big uh, wave of new Republican candidates kicking out long-time incumbents, and these are people who had used their power and used their seniority in government to really deliver for the state, um, Right. And, you have peop- and they lost, and they lost to nobodies who didn't continue that record, who really ran just on issues like guns, uh, what's, what's the saying, guns, gods, and gays. And <laughs> that's important to a lot of people. Um,
0: yeah. I think yeah. That, we do ourselves uh, having, a disservice to dismiss those as not real or as boogeyman or, yeah, no, it's real to a lot of, it's very real. It's real to, to
1: a lot of people, but what's yeah. also real is making sure that universities have enough money, making sure that we're building the infrastructure we need to keep growing and surviving, making sure that people have healthcare, making sure that we've built storm surge barriers to protect us from hurricanes. And that is not what people run on. It's not what Uh, voters reward people for. And it isn't talked about as an important role uh, of our elected officials. The incentives aren't there.
0: So in your experience with this issue so far, which of your elected officials, which of our elected officials have been the most receptive to taking this to a more serious level?
1: I'll point to two people very different who have done good things to simply keep the Houston area safe from hurricanes. I think you have Lena Hidalgo, who under her leadership, uh, you start to see real efforts to build barriers within Galveston Bay. It's something the county has power to do. And she's yes. built, she has built on of efforts by her predecessor, at, uh, Ed Emmett, to raise money, take out a multi-billion dollar bond and build that infrastructure, do whatever it takes. And I want to give credit to John Cornyn, too. He is not as active as Kaybelly E. Hutchinson was. She was on the Appropriations Committee. He was not. He really is more of a creature of his party. But immediately after Harvey, a mediocre bill to help Houston recover was passed out of the House. By its own riders, it was a C-plus bill, but it's what they could get. And it was better than the F-minus that the Trump administration first tried to give them. It was in the Senate, and it got stuck. And they would never take it up for a vote and they wouldn't try to pass it. And John Cornyn had to put a hold on a Trump administration appointee to force a vote. And a lot of people got really mad at him for doing that. A lot of other Republicans got mad at him, but it was his job. And it drives me nuts that other uh, people involved in politics did not see that as his job, did not see that as something that was important for him and really should be important for any Senator whenever their constituents are suffering and need federal support.
0: Well, and when we think about um, the role that the Houston economy plays in the national economy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I feel like a lot of folks, they think Ike Dyke and it's just a sort of like catchy phrase or whatever, but... Um, for better or worse, we are our economy is inextricable with the national economy. Like here in Houston, we are a, a major economic driver, not only for North America but also the global economy. And so, this is not just a Houston issue or a Texas issue. Like this is massive.
1: I mean, depending on how you measure it, the Port of Houston has is the number one port for uh, international trade. Depending on how you measure it. Every day that that port is closed because of a disaster or a crash or a hurricane, billions of dollars are lost. Right. And depending how you measure it, the entire U.S. economy relies on the petroleum products that flow through that port. Uh, right. We still rely on oil and gas for this country to run. We still rely on jet fuel for this uh, economy to run. And that is where it comes from. And if you have a 24-foot wall of water smashing into that, then you're going to see gas prices spike. You're going to see the flow of goods stall. You're going to see a lot of bad things happening. And probably worse for the people who actually live here, you're going to see a lot of those products spilled. You can see a lot. Oh,
0: yeah. The environmental implications are insane.
1: At the low level, you're going to see something three times the size of Exxon Valdez if those facilities are storm surge. And if this isn't going to be in the middle of nowhere where the real harm is to the natural environment. There are 6 million people living in this region. And storm right. surge coming through there, people are going to be up to their knees in a toxic sludge. It's going to be the equivalent uh, of some kind of nuclear fallout here in Houston because the legacy of this carcinogens isn't going to go away when the waters recede. It's going to be in the soil, it's going to be in buildings, and it's going to be in people for a long time.
0: How are people not alarmist about
1: this? I think people just measure risk in weird ways, in bad ways.
0: Yeah, I guess so. So I I feel at this point it's incumbent upon me to give a few transparent. I grew up in Deer Park Mm -hmm. um, right along the Houston Ship Channel. My, my mama lived in Deer Park, my dad lived in Baytown, which is just on the other side, um, adjacent to Crosby is where we were. It's still unincorporated, um, 1942. So I-10 in North Maine, right? So like Cedar Bayou is our property line. I grew up swimming in the San Jacinto River, okay? It's a designated Superfund site for those of you listening who are unfamiliar. My family had no awareness around these issues whatsoever. So it's like this whole storied sort of history that I feel on this issue. But I also feel like it's um, mind blowing when I started learning more about it because I grew up completely unaware. Mm-hmm. I mean, swimming in the San Jacinto River is probably as oblivious as it can get. Right.
1: But it's not as if this is something unique to Houston or to Texas. Look at how we've had to struggle to make people wear the carcinogens in cigarettes. Notice how, we, how hard it is to control the very real threats of pollution everywhere, or just look at the fight right now over climate change.
0: Yeah, global warming.
1: <laughs> People do a very good job of measuring risk. It's really easy for debates to turn into partisan issues or issues of identity. Um, and it's really easy to shift uh, where blame is for a lot of this too, because it's not as if uh, you have the ability to say, well, I don't like what they're doing down at the port, so I'm going to stop buying their products gonna stop buying plastics? Going Impossible, to stop buying, right? You're growing with fertilizers. Like, how are you gonna do that? The only way to make so, to make real change happen requires some kind of top-down uh, shift, top-down regulations, or uh, financial pressures through the courts, and those are very difficult to do.
0: Well, to do in a certainly to do at a scale that would actually be impactful, right? Because mm-hmm. particularly. Well, it's interesting, though, because when we talk about um, environmental impacts of this stuff and motivators and how do you motivate people to change behavior, we've been we've been applying fines to the petrochemical facilities for air quality since time immemorial. Now it's in the budget. So it's like, how do you you know what I mean? How do you do these things at a scale where it actually makes an impact? Mm -hmm. But also one would think that. So I, I worked um, for the Economic Alliance Houston Port region, which represents all those you know, um, private industries and like uh, a dozen municipalities along the ship channel. And one thing that was interesting to me is the lack of cohesion among, like you would think, oh, these people clearly have a, an interest block, right? But because they're owned by places not here, like because they're owned by other places, they don't always have um, a united interest block. And so that I've been kind absolutely of-
1: absolutely an issue. And I think that's something that's happening across the city, that Houston used to be a city filled with CEOs, that right. banks were based out of here, companies were based out of here, and the people who owned them and ran them lived here. And they had a vested material interest in trying to make this a nice place. One, because they lived here because they had to see it every day. Uh, And two, because they took a certain amount of pride in that this was their company in their city and they wanted things to exist for their people.
0: Which again goes back to that sense of identity, like, oh, I can connect it to my sense of identity and so I have pride of ownership. Right.
1: And once you start to get away from that, once you start to see consolidations and you see the companies, the big companies in Houston that aren't based here, they're based out of New York or Chicago or Dubai or wherever, we're not a city of CEOs who have the ability to say, my company is gonna do X or I'm gonna spend $10 million on Y. You have a bunch of regional vice presidents and maybe they're not from here. Maybe they're not gonna be here for a very long time and they certainly don't have the authority to say, my company is gonna do X, Y, and Z. Right. And so whether it's something small, like trying to start a new university or trying to get money to a museum, it's harder to make that happen than it used to be in the past. And when it's something very big, like saying we need to put political pressure on statewide officials to get us the resources necessary to save our city from climate change, save our city from a coastal storm surge that would be happening almost inevitably even if we didn't have climate change. Right. Uh, that, that pressure doesn't exist. like how it used to.
0: Yeah, no, that it's been shocking to me to like, this hasn't already happened. And the only thing I can think of is because the, the corporations haven't made it happen. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, truly, they would be the ones right with the biggest stick.
1: Um, That's a big question. And I've heard that from a lot of people. Why aren't the companies that own the facilities that are truly at risk, uh, trying to agitate over this? And I have an interesting line, which was, if you go, you, they have free tours of the ship channel, which I highly recommend. The uh, Sam
0: Houston boat tour.
1: Yeah. You can drink on them. They're great. I've done it a thousand times. Oh, yeah. and you go, <laughs> When I
0: was like showing international delegations around who were considering foreign direct investment.
1: <laughs> no, that's awesome. Uh, that's good. Tell them to spend more money here. We, we it. Uh, but you look at these big, these massive, <laughs> or you, you drive down the freeways down towards deer park, uh, And you look at these refineries and chemical plants and these incredible infrastructure that you really cannot see anywhere else in the world and look for the ones that have rust on them. (laughs) If a building has rust on it, you know that the company that owns it has decided that the upkeep necessary to keep it rust free, to keep it looking good, uh, isn't worth the longevity they will get out of it. And basically they're Mm -hmm. waiting for this thing to become unusable and whether it becomes unusable through, uh, This normal attrition, whether it becomes unusable due to a massive natural disaster, that's where it's going. And they don't really have any interest in trying to protect that capital investment anymore.
0: You mean those murals on the side of the tanks aren't protecting our investment?
1: (laughs) They certainly look nice.
0: (laughs) The STARS program.
1: And the real scary thing to think about is that the people who own big companies, who own this kind of infrastructure, you know, in a worst case scenario, they'll end up okay. You know, they probably don't live yeah. here. They have a lot of money. They're hedged. They'll be fine. And there's or, a yeah, they, they can... sometimes from environmental groups saying, well, why do we want to protect all this oil and gas stuff? You know, it should be gone anyways. And I tell them that the people you really want to put pressure on who you don't like, they will not be hurt by this. The people who will be hurt are the people who live here. We'll have to deal with the spills. We'll have to deal with the lost jobs. We'll have to deal with all of the disaster around this. You know, when, when Katrina struck New Orleans, you didn't go like, aha, finally all those greedy hotel owners will pay for their crimes. They're all <laughs> the ones who suffer from this.
0: Right.
1: It's all right. The who actually live there. And that is what a, a lot of this is about, is that the people who really need help, who need to be protected, Uh, don't have the power or the voice uh, to force something on this scale happening. And politicians uh, don't feel pressure from these voters, whether due to gerrymandering or just whether due to shifts in the way that uh, political incentives happen.
0: Yeah, no, you know, I see a lot of um, writing and articles when we talk about the issue of quote, being left behind. I see a lot of writings and articles about how The southern United States and coastal cities in general, people should just leave them. There's going to be this mass exodus. And it's the same line of crap that you hear about New Orleans. Like, well, they just shouldn't let people live there. Like they just shouldn't. And so there's this fundamental disregard for what's the word I'm looking for at home?
1: (laughs) I think for values. Values that people have values that are disconnected from the economic value, from the financial value, or like I said, from the risk itself, that people see things as important then perhaps don't measure as important in the ways that the market or politics measures things. And this is something getting back to what I said before, that isn't necessarily a partisan issue Uh, depending on who you are And where you are in this country, either you're important or you're not. And a lot of people are not important and it's very sad. And the language doesn't exist to help, uh, I don't know, give cause to those issues in the moment.
0: Yeah, I'm quiet and uh, thoughtful and contemplative about this because it, All of the conversations that I've been having lately, no matter what the issues are, whether I'm talking with someone who runs a nonprofit or whether I'm talking with someone who runs an urban farm collective or whatever, right? Like all of the, and even now when we're talking about massive major infrastructure projects that have to happen with federal backing and federal funding, it keeps coming back to this fundamental issue of like, who's important to protect, who's important to feed, Who's important um, to be heard, right? <laughs> and so it's like, okay, what do we do to get around that? Like, how do we how do we push through that? And like on issues of this magnitude, how do you, I want to say, corral because I'm fucking Texan, but like, how do you how do you uh, garner a consensus around the urgency of the issue in mm-hmm. a way that um, does actually wind up protecting the people that need protection?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's this uh, writer, Chris Arnade, who had this book looking at places across the country where he felt like there were people whose values were out of sync with the values that are rewarded. Uh, people who did not value getting the top job, people who not value getting a lot of money, valued their homes and their families. <laughs> and these are places like in the Rust Belt, but there are also places in big cities like uh, poor neighborhoods in New York City. Places yep. in El Paso, places along the Gulf Coast. And his metaphor is that in this country, you have front row and back row kids, like in a classroom. And the kids in the front row paid attention to the teacher. They cared good about getting their good grades and they went off. And there are kids in the back row who really didn't care about this stuff. But their lives are important too. And their values are different, but they're important too. And we do not have an economic or political system that materially cares about things. There's a lot of lip right. service. About that stuff, but there's not a lot of political power and financial respect given to that.
0: Yeah, um, I feel like in this country, in particular, we don't actually have we don't have any political party or systemic structure or support for um, leftism in any way, right? Like, and I know I'm a radical lefty, so. Um, Of course, I would say that, right? But like even me as a far radical leftist, so example, my best friend lives in Rotterdam and works for the port of Rotterdam and has been intimately involved in some of these discussions that we're having. And like when we did the whole thing where our team went over to the Netherlands to look at their um, protection system, you know, all of that, right? He's just mind blown <laughs> that this is even an issue, right? I know the tendency is to say, like, okay, we have to get out of partisanship if we're ever gonna get, make progress on an issue. Mm-hmm. But part of me, part of me's like, maybe not. Maybe we just go really far left and we say, fuck it. And we dig in and say, okay, so this is a radical idea. It is a radical idea, but you know what? It protects people, mm-hmm. right? So,
1: like, you, you built stuff like this before. Now, we have built the, The seawall in Galveston. Right. uh, Massive dike facilities across the country. It's happened across the world and not just in Rotterdam, but in St. Petersburg is a good example. You know, we have this kind of stuff and we don't just need it in Houston, too. New York City really needs a massive storm surge barrier, uh, particularly for lower Manhattan. And it's funny because that's where Wall Street is. And you don't necessarily hear Wall Street agitating for that kind of thing. And probably for the same reason that if their buildings flood, they'll be okay. The guys who, you know, work the hot dog stands probably won't. Yeah.
0: Sorry, I'm having a moment of silence for the guys in the hot dog stands. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As they deserve, as they deserve. Yeah, no, it's interesting, the history um, around this issue, because I know that there, at one point, were two competing studies, right? So you had the Rice, is it the Speed, the Speed
1: Center? Center? Right,
0: right, So the, and that was like Ed Emmett's, uh, Judge Emmett's, I think, preferred route, uh, correct me? Blackburn. I'm like, please correct me at every stage. I, you know,
1: I don't know that where his <laughs> alignment was on it. I will say we have Bill Merrill at Texas AM and Jim Blackburn at the Speed Center. And they do not get along. Uh, for reasons I don't entirely understand, I really think it's something with ego. Um, but a, a lot of it is that uh, Bill Merrill really thinks that he's right on this. <laughs> and, you know, and he probably is. Um, we just got, it was basically to like say, we got to do my thing and we'll get it done. And he he probably is right. Uh, And Blackburn's got a little bit more uh, uh, trying to put it all in context and saying, well, how do we get the money for it? How do you deal with the politics of it? If we build this thing, a lot of people's homes will be uh, impacted by it in ways they don't wanna be impacted. How do you get around that?
0: Like eminent domain and all that good stuff, yeah. Or
1: that you're gonna, one of the original plans for to build a barrier was to raise the road that goes through the middle of Galveston Island. And that would be the barrier. Well, there are a lot of homes on the other side of that road that will be caught between the storm surge and the barrier. And people don't want that to happen to their homes, which is, or or like, fine, we'll put it in front of your homes. Like, well, now I can't see the beach. I've got this big barrier in front of my house. What are you doing to me? So it's just a lot of issues uh, that make this hard to do. And so I think that the Speed Center, there's a little bit more nuance in saying, well, what are other things we could do? Where are things that maybe won't be as expensive?
0: That sort of incremental approach of like, what can we do now with what we have with an eye still on?
1: Right. And so they're really gung-ho on the county's plan to build barrier islands within the Bay because they say we can do it with the resources we have now. Uh, We don't need too much help from the federal government. We have all the authority we need. And because it's not directly impacting homes in the same way, like we can get it done.
0: It's not like a takings. It's not imminent domain. It's not something that you're going to have to go through right
1: right now. And so these issues are complementary. You know, the, the Ike-Dyke and the Galveston Bay uh, barrier, they would work together. And I think that's really good to, to see that there's a lot of different projects that we can do at the goal of trying to keep us safe from hurricanes. Absolutely. Particularly if they're not mutually exclusive. Right. And so, the, so that's where a lot of the, and that's where I think a lot of the antagonism is unnecessary. There's, and I think that it's just folks, uh, they do, I think people in academia do their jobs, and they do them well for a really long time, and they become experts in their fields. And they don't like dissent, because they're not used to it. And often the people who disagree with them are wrong. And it's tough to sometimes to get people to, to try to get along. And I really think that... You know, this probably isn't the core challenge to getting an tech built to getting some kind of protective barrier built, but it's interesting to see.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic because mm-hmm. when I was at the Economic Alliance as an ex- I was the director of economic development for the Alliance, mm-hmm. and I was sort of. Uh, asking the CEO one day, like, why aren't we, why aren't we more vocal on this issue? Like this is, this directly affects our constituents. And he was like, look, that's Bayheps. We don't, you know, everybody has their, you know, ECMA has their thing and ECMA East Harris County manufacturers um, association. So ECMA has their thing and Bayheps has their thing and economic alliance has their thing and greater Houston partner, GHP, greater Houston partnership has their, you know, Right. Everybody has their little thing, you know, um, and it's it's again, like you said, that's not actually probably the primary hurdle to getting this done, but it is a dynamic that I think is worth considering. And, and, and
1: every one of every one of those groups got their thing done. That'd be good. That'd be great. Probably. I, I don't know what all their projects are, but I presume they're good. It's uh, a very
0: generous presumption. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but it's so tough today to get any action at a federal level or even at a state level that you really need some kind of unity of a a pressure and some kind of cross-cutting agreement on what has to happen to make anything happen. Uh, Maybe unless,
0: we just need a really catchy marketing campaign.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, unless, of course, you are, you know, someone who is, for some reason, politically important. You know, you're a primary voter. You, you're in a swing district, you know, th- that kind of stuff. But those people, for whatever reason, seem to care more about know, social issues, issues, The things get driven into our minds through the way the political messaging works. You know, you don't have right. people out there banging the table and saying, you know, I want better flood infrastructure. Uh, (laughs) You
0: do in Bel Air.
1: (laughs) Okay. No, you do. Southside Place. (laughs) We're the people getting mad at the federal government. I I really want to meet people who really change their votes, like, at the top of the ticket over these issues.
0: Yeah. There are probably not very many. Mm Mm-mm. Oh, it sucks. It really does. I was thinking about it, though, and I'm like, okay, how do we get creative about this? Like, how do we create a coalition that is not Team AM or Team Rice or Team Economic Alliance or Team Bay, you know, whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And I got to thinking like, well, the Army Corps is theoretically pretty neutral, right? Like they're, they're just doing a series. What phase are they in now of their study? Like it's like phase two. I stopped
1: two. counting the phases. I keep <laughs> waiting for them just to get it to go Because right now their plan has made a lot of people like a lot of nobody happy because it replaced all the big barriers with like big dunes, which still block people's view of the sea. Oh my God. Also don't do a good job of blocking the water.
0: And yeah. also, like, still mess with people's homes yeah. and have takings,
1: and like, <laughs> and even if you like, even if these things did work, and you had like a giant, you know, fourteen foot double dune system to block a storm surge, uh, and th- and then it happens, uh, then you'd have to go back and rebuild it, and that would be expensive too, and you'd have to wait for another round of federal funding probably to get the money necessary to make all that happen. And, and yeah. so there's, uh, Bill Merrill has been publishing pieces in the Dallas, or not the Dallas News, the Galveston News, uh, saying that he thinks this is a bad idea and that we need you know, something better. And I don't know, the Congress is supposed to vote on this by 2022. Hopefully we won't have any major hurricanes between now and then. And then once they get there, it's still going to take a decade or so to build the whole thing.
0: I just cannot imagine, like if someone were to quantify the value of all of that will be lost in the next 10 years of hurricanes, I cannot imagine that it does not at least equal whatever it would cost to build this thing.
1: Uh, I'm sure the financial sense is there, but people don't think in those ways. I think because it's not as if we all are pulling from one big pot of money to get our stuff. People have their individual financial interests. Look at Houston after Hurricane Harvey, which you know wasn't a storm surge issue. It was just a lot, a lot of rain Right, Del- that sure. filled up the, the attics and Barker's dams, that filled up the bios, that flooded. It was
0: terrifying. Let's be yes. real.
1: It just, it, it didn't stop raining. And a lot of places were built, we learned, in areas that they really shouldn't have been built in that we knew would eventually flood. Or they've been built in places that would cause runoff downstream to areas that had been safe for a long time and suddenly were in a floodplain. And after all of that, a lot of people say, well, we really got to rethink how we do our city. We got to think in big picture. We're gonna make this happen. You know, We're not gonna make this mistake again. And then on um, the weeks after, the city approves a municipal utility district in the 100 year floodplain to build infrastructure for new homes. And that was like immediate. That actually happened. You know, We don't have to talk about hypotheticals about a uh, uh, Hurricane Harvey happening. We lived through it.
0: That's so disheartening.
1: <laughs> and I think the attitude is if you're a developer, if there is any kind of inkling uh, for you to be able to do something, well, you better do it or else someone else is going to do it and someone else is going to make the money. And until the financial pressure there, or the regulatory structure is there to stop that from happening, to compel better building codes to stop people from building where they shouldn't be building. It's just going to keep happening. And it's not as if Houston, like, is a place where it's tough to develop. That's always kind of, right. kind of wrapping my head around the people and like, oh, we can't overreact to this. We still have to let Houston be Houston. Like, Houston's not going to have zoning after this. Like, you know, we're still going to be Houston. We're not going to be right. Cisco. We're not going to be able to block development on your block just because you don't like it. You know, uh, right. restrictions aside, Ashby high rise aside. <laughs>
0: I mean, I lived over there when that was going on. <laughs> yeah,
1: we're still going to be able to, it's still really easy to do stuff here. We're just saying, yeah. don't build it in a way where it's going to flood or it's going to make flooding worse.
0: Well, you know, when we were looking to purchase a home, one of the biggest hurdles that we found was the cost of insurance. And so really? it complete. yeah, it completely ruled out um, like off the top, the, the, our top four communities, like we couldn't afford the insurance. Yeah. Yes.
1: So, so subsidized, right. It's a federal program.
0: It is. It is a federal program, but they won't insure you. You have to go to the private. You have to have some sort of additional, like as oh, an example, if
1: you live in a flood area. They won't insure. Seabrook.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's look at Seabrook as a oh, prime yeah. example.
1: Seabrook is going to be underwater.
0: Right, I love Seabrook. Seabrook is like my jam.
1: But yeah. I like to I like to get an Airbnb there every now and then, and just kind of yeah. like, like Seabrook for a weekend.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I was um, when my son was first born, I was a single mother, and I I had to live a little further. I had moved. You know from inside the loop and I needed to move further out and Seabrook is where we moved and so I for me Seabrook is like this really cocooned period of my life where I had a tiny little one bedroom apartment near the bay with my son and so it's like this it it holds a special place for me right um but when my wife and I were moving from New York City and considering like okay you know, and we wouldn't have been able to purchase necessarily had she not come into a very small inheritance when my father-in-law passed away. And so when you come into money that way, it's like its whole own whatever. And so we're like, well, we should purchase a home. Like we should like do the family thing. And we really love Seabrook, and we couldn't, we couldn't get any of the homes insured. Like flat out, my agent was like, I can't insure anything in this whole area for less than, you know, the price of the mortgage per month.
1: That's ridiculous. But in a way, that's good because we don't want people living there.
0: Right. So that's what I mean. It gets back to this idea. But, but it doesn't prevent people from living there. You know who prevents from living there? Poor people. Middle class people People. and poor people.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It means you can live and it doesn't stop people from building there. It just means that whatever you build there is going to be expensive, Because that's going to be moving in.
0: Yes. This is the same reason. So Mm -hmm. we ended up leasing an apartment in Brayswood Place Mm -hmm. because we love the area, Uh, you know, as a Jewish person. And as a a person who has a, a school aged child, it was like it was like the nexus of like everything we could afford. But we were renting. Um, because we couldn't find a house to buy fast enough, right. When we moved from New York city. And so we're like, we'll just rent for a year and, and, you know, find a neighborhood or whatever. And honestly, we desperately wanted to stay inside the loop. And when I say desperate, I'm really not being, uh, I'm not exaggerating because we'd moved from crown Heights, Brooklyn, right. We're very much Mm urbanites and we couldn't afford anything. In any of the areas, it Meyerland, Bel Air, Southside Place, Braidswood Place. I mean, that's the stretch we wanted, right? And the homes were affordable, sort of-ish, depending on your definition of affordable. Maybe. They were affordable with an inheritance. They're affordable with privilege.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But we couldn't get them insured.
1: Wow. That's incredible. I didn't know that Southside Place was in the floodplain like that.
0: I don't know. that it, I didn't think that it was either. Even uh, with the Bray's Bayou uh, infrastructure improvement projects, we right. still, they were like, no.
1: years behind schedule and only prepares the bio for a 25-year event when it really yep. needs to be at a uh, 100-year event, 500-year event. we yep. are going to spend billions in federal dollars to do this thing uh, <laughs> behind schedule and over budget. And then they're going to have to do something almost immediately afterwards to get it up to level. Or all the homes around it, which you see now, are being built like jacked
0: up. Which is like it's 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 this whole own other um sort of caste system on display to me is like the literal home. Yeah, how high you can build your home, like the literal jacking up, not only of the prices of the homes, Mm -hmm. but the literal jacking up of these homes to me represents this idea of like I can afford to stay put until this ship sinks, and it's like well, I want to stay put too, you know, like I want to.
1: On Val Keith, next to Godwin park in Meyerland. And the other day I was driving through there and of course the house isn't there anymore. I think it was torn down after the tax day flood, but all these homes are just like castles in the sky, but also there's only a few actually occupied homes on every block. The whole neighborhood is creepily empty and the, the new, uh, Elementary school, they're building up there is on this like floating foundation that's like way, way up. It's like something out of uh, a dune that you expect to see in a new movie. There's just this weird design. And I guess that's what you have to build to survive in this. Yeah. And at no point do we think like maybe we shouldn't be building here.
0: Maybe we just should should be (laughs)
1: like leaving green space to absorb the water when it does flood so that. We can have some homes that are safe rather than trying to build every single lot there. And a part of the weird pressure is you don't want to lose the tax base. The city needs those property taxes. So it needs people. Does to live it
0: here. though, really?
1: That's a big issue. You can't have the city losing part of its tax base. That's going to lead to all these other consequences. Uh, Also, my time is up. I got to go, I've got another meeting. This has been great. Uh, Thanks for chatting with me about this. And really anytime you want to talk about the Ike Dyke or just Houston, uh, I'm here.
0: Yeah, no, I really appreciate your time and I hope we talk again soon. Hi, you've been listening to the Community Values Podcast and we're glad you're here. For more episodes, more information about our community development grants and projects, or more information about our sponsor, Anthem LLC, you can find us online at communityvaluespod.org.